Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today. 570-726-6200. When an accomplished long-distance runner hits the trails in the central Wyoming mountains and never returns, investigators are tasked with answering the question, what or who did this Olympic hopeful fail to outrun? Strange journals, a serial killer with a history of terrible crimes against women, and other theories are explored in this episode of Last Seen Alive. This is the 20th episode of Last Seen Alive. Really? Yeah, it is. And we appreciate you listening to our stories of unsolved homicides and disappearances. So, thank you. Will you do us a favor? If you love this show, please consider giving it a five-star review if you listen in an app that allows you to rate podcasts like Apple Podcasts. And tell a friend. We'd love to reach as many true crime enthusiasts as possible. Thanks very much. And now, on to our story. That sounds like my part. It is, but at the beginning, so more people hear it. Oh. <laughs> Amy Rowe Bechtel was last seen alive on July 24th, 1997. What happened to her was classically tragic. She went for a jog and never came back. We're not strangers to this narrative. It's a tried and true horror story. For women simply running, for pleasure, for the health benefits, can turn into running for your life. We all know names of women who suffered this fate. Chandra Levy is one of the most famous, and at the time of this recording, Sydney Sutherland is one of the most recent. According to an article from Runner's World, which we've linked to on our website, 30% of women runners have been followed by someone, either in a vehicle, on foot, or on a bike. 30%. That's really high. Yeah, that's nearly a third. On a personal note, I've got the anecdote in this same being. In fact, the only time I've ever experienced stalking is when I was a young college student and went through a phase where I was jogging around my neighborhood every day. And this creep started following after me, at least as far as the limits of my block. He also used to wait for me to enter and exit my apartment, and he'd yell at me. I'm not sure if I could have outrun him. He was pretty athletic. But I know one thing, I would have been a lot more worried about it if this had all happened out in the wilderness, like some believe it may have to Amy. Looking back, I can't help but think of what people always say about predatory animals. Don't run from them because they'll instinctively give chase. Dogs, bears, big cats, it doesn't matter, the advice is always the same. And I think it might apply to human predators, too. 
I think there just might be something about the sight of a potential victim running that makes a sick predator want to give chase. On the day of her disappearance, Amy left her home in Lander, Wyoming to go for a run. It was something she did all the time. Fitness and athletic endeavors consumed Amy's life. She had a degree in exercise physiology and taught a youth weightlifting class at a local gym. That's a degree? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. She also worked at the Wild Iris, a climbing shop. Lander has a huge rock climbing scene that was really beginning to blossom in those days and waited tables at a local grill. She was always on the go, especially during the time leading up to her disappearance. She was training for a 10K marathon. Amy enjoyed running so much that she planned her day around that run, working her way down a to-do list of errands. When they were done, she'd reward herself with a 10K uphill run. That sounds like a punishment, not a reward. Yeah, it's... Not most people's idea of a treat at the end of a busy day, but for Amy, it was a passion. She'd been an outstanding distance runner in college, and she even had aspirations to qualify for the 2000 Olympic marathon trials. So after she taught a weightlifting class, bought health insurance, dropped off some photos for framing, and accomplished a laundry list of other tasks, she set out on the course she'd planned through the Wind River Mountains in the Shoshone National Forest. The owner of the photo store where she dropped off those prints was the last confirmed person to see Amy, although multiple eyewitnesses would later report they'd seen a woman who looked like Amy running on a road through the forest, just like she'd planned. Amy's husband, Steve, got home at 4.30 in the afternoon that day. Like Amy, he was an athlete and avid outdoors person. His passion was rock climbing, and he actually worked at that wild iris climbing store just like Amy. The couple had been married for a year, and it was easy to see why they'd been drawn to each other. They'd first met in college, where they'd both studied the same thing, exercise physiology, which, yes, is a degree, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Later, they'd moved to Lander because the mountainous central Wyoming town was a paradise for a couple with their passions, running and rock climbing. I think I'm giving too much away by saying I didn't know that was a degree. (laughs) Steve knew Amy had gone for a run, and he'd expected her to be back that afternoon. At first, her absence didn't seem like a big deal. She'd had a busy day, and maybe she was still catching up on errands. But as the hours slipped by, Steve, along with his neighbors, who were also their landlords, became worried. Steve made calls, seeing if he could track track her down anywhere, but it didn't work. So he recruited some friends to help him search for her. And at half past ten that night, he called the sheriff's office and reported Amy missing. It wasn't law enforcement who made the next discovery, though. And it wasn't Steve, either. Okay, so, before we get to that, what was her normal, like, 10K time? Like, how long could they normally expect her to be gone? How long did it normally take her to run a little over six miles? Yeah, it, it, as like a pleasure run. I'm Since going to be honest that's with thing. you. I don't recall the specific figure from my research. But let's put it this way. An Olympic quality runner could, on a flat surface, run a mile in five minutes and 30 some seconds. Okay, but she's running uphill. 
Right. So let's just say that it took her three times that time. We're still talking less than 20 minutes. For six, six times that time, and we're still talking well under an hour. So it's not going to take her hours upon hours, even when you add in the drive time. Okay, I was just guessing at four. Because I'm going to be honest, I don't know how long 10K is. It would not take her four hours to run that. No way. Okay, well, that's what I imagine my 10K time would be. That would probably be my 10K time, but (laughs) we're not talking (laughs) about me here, so. Steve and a couple dozen friends set out to search for Amy late that night. It was actually the neighbors, the ones who they were renting the house from, who discovered Amy's Toyota Tercel on a twisting mountain road called Loop Road, which winds through Sinks Mountain State Park, a beautiful nature preserve at the base of the Wind River mountain range, where Amy had gone to run. It was parked at a turnoff, and there was no sign of Amy. The car's keys were on the seat, but there was no sign of her wallet either. Why would she leave her keys if she was going on 10K? Especially in plain sight on the seat, right? It's weird. Yeah, like, that's very odd. Perhaps even more telling than the contents of the car was the earth around and beneath the car. According to an excellent article from Runner's World, which we've linked to on our website, lastseenalifepodcast.com, the ground was wet and puddles had accumulated near the car, a result of an earlier rain spell. Something was missing, though. Tire marks, footprints. Neither of those things were present. It appeared as if the car had been parked and abandoned before it had rained, which had occurred that afternoon, hours before. Her vehicle was discovered at 1 a.m., which meant it had been sitting there for hours. Yeah, it would have had to have been. So where was Amy, and what could have compelled her to abandon her car? The run she'd planned had been a 10K, which translates to a little over six miles. I don't think it was abandoned at this point. Sure, the terrain was tough, but Amy was an extremely experienced and well-conditioned long-distance runner. There was no way the run could have taken her so long. Unless, of course, she was injured. Amy's neighbors called Steve right away from a cell phone and reported what they'd found. It was almost a relief to have located her car. At first, the logical conclusion seemed to be that Amy had been injured, twisted an ankle maybe, and gotten stranded in the wilderness in the rain. Not an ideal situation to be stuck in, of course, but she could hopefully be quickly rescued from. In an interview with Unsolved Mysteries, one of the neighbors who discovered the car described it as a relief, even if she wasn't inside. So the search continued. By the next day, it had expanded from a small group of friends of Steve and Amy's into an effort that included search dogs, people searching the rugged terrain on horseback and ATVs, and over a hundred volunteers. That's amazing. Yeah, eventually helicopters were even brought in. As the search grew, so did the concern of her family, friends, and law enforcement. With each passing day, the idea that Amy was waiting beside a trail somewhere, injured and waiting for help, seemed more wildly unlikely. The prevailing theory quickly became something much more frightening. Law enforcement worried that Amy might have been attacked by a wild animal and dragged away from the trail she'd been running. I can see the fear there, or the concern. Mm -hmm. Wyoming is home to a rich array of wildlife, which likely comes as no surprise to most. 
The state is home to Yellowstone National Park, which is perhaps the most famous national park in the country. Although Amy didn't go missing there, wildlife is abundant in central Wyoming, too. And when it came to their suspicions, there were two main suspects, mountain lions and bears. There are also wolves present in Wyoming. I was just going to say, did you know that the wolf packs have started returning to Yellowstone? There's actually quite a robust population of wolves in Wyoming, from what I've read. In a lot of parts of Wyoming, people are allowed to shoot them indiscriminately as vermin, which really surprised me. Yeah, it's... I, I always hear about, like, wildlife conservation areas. One of the big keys is when wolves return, because it means that they have a stable enough ecosystem to support them. Mm-hmm. So they're definitely in Wyoming. And any one of those three predators would be capable of attacking killing and dragging an adult human, especially a small one like Amy, who weighed in at just 115 pounds. Was it possible that this was what happened? That she'd fallen victim to a dark but natural side of the spectacular beauty the state is known for? It's possible, yes, but statistically speaking, it's rare. Very rare. On average, there are only two or three fatal bear attacks per year in the United States. Fatal mountain lion attacks are even rarer, averaging less than a single fatal attack per year. And wolves? Fatal wolf attacks are so rare in the U.S. that they're almost unheard of. Still, rare doesn't mean impossible, and Amy was running alone in an area of wilderness rich with wildlife, which of course raised her risk above that of the average Americans. And if she had been attacked by an animal like a mountain lion or bear, the animal could have purposely hidden her remains. When an animal does this, it's called caching behavior. It's natural behavior intended to hide the food source from other animals, and perhaps even to slow the decomposition process. Cached prey may be buried or dragged into a sheltered area such as a cave. Searchers found no sign of Amy having been attacked and dragged away by a predator. And as law enforcement and civilian volunteers alike continued to comb the wilderness, investigators' suspicions took a darker turn. By the time Amy had been missing for a week, they'd begun to consider Steve, her husband, a possible suspect. This probably comes as a surprise to no one. Whenever someone disappears and foul play is suspected, you start your investigative efforts close to home. Statistically speaking, the spouse or partner is the soundest theory. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 64% of female murder victims in the U.S. are killed by their partners or other family members. The numbers make it clear. If you're a woman, the devil you know is far more dangerous than the devil you don't. Like, that's a lot. Especially yeah. when you think about 30%, talking about 30% being stalked or tracked or followed. Mm-hmm. And that's by people they don't know, so... The odds of that resulting in a murder are a lot lower than their own partner killing them. And when you compare the likelihood of a woman being killed by a partner to the likelihood of her being snatched off a running trail by a wild animal, the latter scenario almost seems like a morbid type of wishful thinking. So it's no surprise that investigators began to take a long, hard look at Steve. I was surprised it took them so long to look at him. Yeah, it took them several days of considering her to just be a missing runner who had had some sort of unfortunate mishap, which surprised me. But as I mentioned earlier, Steve and Amy had been married for a year, and by all appearances, things were going well. Things were looking up for the couple. They'd recently bought a house in the heart of Lander, 
and were preparing to move out of their modest rental and into their new home. Many of the errands Amy had been running the day of her disappearance revolved around the new home, setting up utilities, etc. There were no police records of domestic incidents between the couple or anything like that, but when investigators searched uh, the home after securing a search warrant, they found something that concerned them. What is it? The items that sounded the alarm in investigators' minds were journals. Journals Steve had been keeping since high school. They were full of what read like poetry. According to what he told investigators, they were song lyrics. The problem with these writings were their content. They described graphic violence against women. Steve claimed they were unrelated to Amy's disappearance. But with Amy missing and possibly dead, the discovery of this trove of violent, misogynistic writings wasn't a great look for the husband left behind to face investigators' questions. It really is eye-raising when you think about that. It's pretty shady. According to Unsolved Mysteries, investigators believe the writings demonstrated a desire for power and control that may have led to murder. I mean... Depending on what the content of the said writings are, she seems like she's very independent. I mean, she's this super runner, rock climber person. She doesn't seem like she needs him to push her or try to encourage her, which would be his normal role, I would think. Right, and one thing I wondered about whenever I read about this was... How recently had he written these poetry, lyrics, whatever they were? Because if he wrote them when he was in high school, which is when the journal stated back to, and they were just some cringy high school stuff, okay, whatever, I wouldn't be concerned. But if he wrote them well into his 20s after being married to Amy, to me that would raise a bit more of a red flag. Like, how old was he? Amy was 24, and they met in college, so I think he was pretty close to her same age. So So I would say mid-20s. Mid-20s? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not even going back that far to think high school, really. Yeah, but think about it. The difference between you or any person and their maturity between the ages of 15 and 25? Who doesn't look back on when they were 15 and cringe? The way you're shaking your head right now I, really makes me wonder. I, I'm, I just think that most people are cringy well into their mid-twenties until they really, like, get about 28. They're pretty cringy. Okay, scientifically speaking, the human brain is still maturing until age 26. With that being said, as a human being who is once a teenager, there is a huge difference between 15 and 25. Huge so uh, I really do think that when he wrote these I lyrics think, or okay. whatever they were, I think it really matters. Going into 22, it's still really cringy. Well, calm down, Taylor Swift, because he was older than that. But, so, that's like three years back. I mean, it's not a whole lot of time, but he could have been writing them well into today. I don't know. When you're young, three years is a long time. A a lot of time to mature for a young adult. There was another thing that bothered investigators, too, when it came to Steve. The testimony of a camper who'd been in the area Amy had been running in on the day she disappeared. 
According to that camper, they saw a blonde woman riding in the passenger seat of a blue pickup truck being driven at a high speed by a man in the same area of the mountain where Amy's car had later been found. They also claimed to have seen the same truck the next day at the search site. This was interesting because Amy was blonde and Steve owned a blue pickup truck. When shown a photo of Steve's truck, the camper said it was the same one they'd seen. What kind of blue truck? I don't know, because none of the articles I read specified that. Well, I mean, there's a big difference between a Ford Ranger and uh, F-450s. I know, but again, none of the articles I read specified. One of those is going to stand out far more than the other. So, sure, there are a lot of blonde women in Wyoming and a lot of blue pickup trucks. But the campers claims... one of those pickup truck kind of states. Oh, definitely. But the campers' claims, combined with the writings investigators had found in Steve's journals, made them even more eager to clear or confirm Steve as a suspect in Amy's disappearance. Even though the camper claimed they couldn't confirm that Steve had been the driver of the pickup truck. So they recognized the truck, supposedly, but not necessarily Steve. Uh, there it's still it depends on what the pickup truck is to kind of solidify that as a sound theory so there was a significant problem when it came to slating steve as a suspect though he had an alibi he'd been rock climbing with a mutual friend of his and amy's earlier in the day and the friend confirmed that after returning home he'd visited his neighbors the ones he and amy rented their home from and who had found amy's car Investigators, though, believe there might have been big enough gaps in his alibi for him to have possibly had something to do with whatever had happened to Amy. Especially if you're given the high rate of speed thing to be true as well. Of particular note is the fact that phone records showed that Steve had made a phone call from his landline telephone at home at 4.45 p.m. on the day of Amy's disappearance. That was the same approximate time that that camper had claimed to have seen his truck barreling down the mountain with a blonde female passenger. How far away are they? 45 minutes drive. So like 30 if you're really gunning it? Yeah, he could not have been in two places at once. Okay. Still, investigators continued to aggressively pursue the possibility of Steve's involvement. The FBI came in to assist local police and on August 5th, just shy of two weeks after Amy's disappearance, a special agent flat-out accused Steve of murdering Amy during a voluntary interview. So, this is a week after investigating him? Yeah, pretty much. The agent bluffed, claiming to have evidence that Steve had done so, and reminded him of the suspicious writings they'd found scrawled in his journals. He asked Steve to take a polygraph test. Upon being accused, Steve terminated the voluntary interview and sought representation by an attorney, which is exactly what anyone ought to do in that situation. That's only the smart move. They've flat out accused you. Yeah, right. Why why would you keep talking to them? Exactly. If they have the evidence, make them prove it. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't have the evidence. It was just a bluff. I know, but if they do, make them prove that they have it. Right, so Steve's attorney, Kent Spence, advised him not to take the polygraph. So he didn't. He refused. It was at this point that some locals began to turn on Steve, growing suspicious. He still had the support of many, especially the people who actually knew him, but the divide in opinion divided the small town. 
Why, some asked, if he was really innocent, would he lawyer up and refuse to take a polygraph? Because he's been accused. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Look, it's easy to understand why this made people suspicious. If someone I cared about went missing, and their spouse lawyered up and withdrew from voluntarily cooperating with the police on their own, I might react emotionally and think the worst of them, too. But at the same time, what Steve did was a rational response for someone in his shoes. Uh, If... uh... I heard that the reason was because he was flat out accused. I would be pretty understanding, I think. This is just one of those situations where rationality may fly in the face of some strong emotions, creating unfortunate conflict. When talking about Steve and his response to investigators' allegations and polygraph requests, I feel it's important to include a reminder that wrongful convictions can and do happen. Remember a few episodes ago when we talked about James Harry Reyes, who was wrongfully convicted of a murder he didn't commit and spent years in prison? Yes, I do. That still outrages me. Right. Plus, polygraphs are, of course, inadmissible in court because of their high rate of inaccurate interpretations. You'll rarely hear anyone mention polygraphs without following up with that fact. Another thing. You know what else polygraphs are? Uncomfortable. I had to pass one in order to complete the hiring process for my current job, and you know what? As a naturally anxious person, I hated it. I can only imagine that if I were in an emotionally raw and volatile state because someone I loved had disappeared and I was being treated like the main suspect, I'd hate it even more. Not that I'd hesitate to participate in another polygraph exam if I thought it would somehow help a cause I cared about, But if someone was accusing me of a crime I knew I hadn't committed, and I knew the only thing the polygraph would be used for would be to bully me, no way. Not in a million years. Yeah, and again, without it being admissible in court, if they're outright saying they have the evidence to do it, and to accuse you directly, make them prove it. Look, the polygraph results are there. They're solely for the purpose of something they can hold over your head. And they're also the ones who interpret them. There's nothing illegal about lying about what you know or don't know to a suspect during a police interrogation. So they could say anything. It really means nothing. Exactly. So I get where Steve was coming from. Yeah. I also get where investigators were coming from and where the people who'd poured hours and hours into searching for Amy were coming from. No matter how you look at it, it's an emotionally charged and frustrating situation for all involved. But while investigators were zeroed in on Steve, tips were coming in that pointed in other directions, including one that, in retrospect, seems particularly compelling. Before I tell you about it, though, I should mention that investigators eventually searched Amy and Steve's home with Luminol, looking for any traces of blood, and also with cadaver dogs. Neither of these efforts yielded anything. They also obtained satellite imagery from the day Amy had gone missing, but that was a bust too. And now, moving on to that tip. Did, did these other tips, did they receive the same level of attention as them honing in on Steve for the first week? Well, no. I was going to cover that. (laughs) But, no. Spoiler alert. According to that article from Runner's World I mentioned, a man named Richard called and said that he thought his brother, Dale Wayne Eaton, may have been involved in Amy's disappearance. 
So who was this Dale Wayne Eaton? Well, that Runner's World article describes him as an itinerant stumble bum. Which... Uh, what, what's a stumble bum? <laughs> okay, first of all, it's one of the best descriptors I've ever heard of any human being ever. Secondly, I looked it up too because I'd never heard it before. And apparently it's like a clumsy second-rate prize fighter who like always loses. Okay, but I want a Webster's Dictionary definition, please. I, I looked it up, and that's I, I just nutshelled it for you. What, what, I don't want nutshell. I want stumble bum. Okay, stumble bum. A clumsy or inept person. There you go. I didn't make up like the fighting boxing thing. That legitimately was a definition I got. <laughs> but anyway. A galoot. <laughs> galoot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember somebody calling somebody a long-legged galoot when I was a young when I was a kid. Was it you? No. Okay. <laughs> anyway. It's the same definition, though, essentially. Although long legs. Itinerant Stumblebum, in addition to being hilarious, is probably a pretty accurate descriptor of Dale Wayne Eaton, who was all over the place in that he had a hard time holding down a job, a relationship, or a living situation. He frequently jumped from labor job to labor job, usually part-time, doing things like selling items at flea markets or, for a while, welding. Dale had a history of violent behavior long before he became a known killer. Here are a couple of highlights, for example. At the age of 26, while living with a friend because his relationship with his 18-year-old wife was on the rocks, he nearly strangled his friend's daughter to death because he didn't like the way she cooked pork chops. That's aggressive. In 1997, a few months after Amy's disappearance, he also attempted to kidnap an entire family at gunpoint in Wyoming when he found them pulled over on the side of the road, experiencing car trouble. After that stunt, he took a plea deal that allowed him to live in a halfway house instead of prison as long as he abided by some simple rules like no drug or alcohol abuse, no breaking the law, no possessing firearms, etc. Sounds like somebody that has a hard time not breaking the law. Oh, he is definitely somebody who has a hard time not breaking the law. I mean, who drives along, sees a family having car trouble, and thinks, mm, I'm going to stop and abduct them all at gunpoint? Somebody that is a predator of opportunity. Right. This is a very unusual individual. If he's got the chance, he'll take the chance. Mm -hmm. So almost immediately, Dale fled the halfway house, becoming a fugitive from justice. A warrant was issued for his arrest, and when he was caught by police, he was found to have a rifle in his possession. This time, there was no plea deal. He went to federal prison. And while he was there, one day he became angry with his cellmate and beat him to death. Can we just take a moment to say how often those plea deals end up with similar situations to that? Don't even get me started. Anyway, so yeah, old Dale was no angel. And those crimes I just told you about, they're just the tip of the iceberg. If you've heard of him before, you might have heard him referred to as the Little Miss Killer, a reference to his murder of 18-year-old Lisa Marie Kimmel, which occurred in 1988 in Fremont County, Wyoming, the same county where Amy and Steve lived in Lander. Lisa was an 18-year-old woman who was traveling alone to visit a friend whenever she was abducted by Dale. At that point in his life, Dale was living in a school bus on some rural property owned by an uncle of his. 
After abducting Lisa, he took her back to the bus where he sexually abused her for a week before finally bludgeoning and stabbing her to death and throwing her in a river. Searchers found her body in that river a few days after she was killed, but at the time they didn't know who'd assaulted and murdered her. Twelve years would pass before analysis of DNA left on her underwear told them that Dale Wayne Eaton had been responsible. When investigators searched Dale's property, they also discovered her car buried there. Her car? The entire car. He buried it. Um, FBI profilers thought that he might have done so not just to hide it, but to keep it as a trophy. They thought that he might become aroused by just walking over the place where he buried it. The effort. I know, I was shocked. Like, surely he didn't dig it out by hand. I don't know how he did it, but he buried an entire car. An entire car. That is, frankly, kind of amazing. I mean, that is commitment right there. But, wow. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't keep her body inside the car. Yeah. Because, I mean... If that was going to be the trophy, then why not do that? Yeah, because, I mean, the car, if they find that, I mean, they know it's enough. You're you're pretty much caught, so... But, who knows? That's what he did. I mean, the car's more likely to hide the body from being rediscovered anyways Mm -hmm. than it is in a river, but... I think he knew that her body would be discovered in the river, I think. I get tired just... Digging a hole for a few minutes to put a tree in. A tree. Sometimes I get tired planting seeds in my garden. Yeah. Could you imagine having to, like, even, you saw how we have a great yard. It is amazing how difficult it is to till up. And that took forever. Maybe he had, like, a backhoe or something. That's the only way I could see it done. I don't know. But Dale was charged with Lisa's murder and abduction in 2003 and convicted in 2004. His sentence? Death. The compelling thing about Lisa's murder in relation to Amy's case is the fact that investigators had long suspected the two murders to be related, even before they found out who'd murdered Lisa. According to ABC7 Denver, an FBI profiler named Greg Cooper investigated Lisa's murder in connection with a series of other killings, including Amy's, that spanned from 1983 to 1997. He thought that Lisa was probably murdered by, quote, a very organized serial killer, unquote. I would say if he went through the process of burying a car, he's probably an organized serial killer. He's not the only one who's described Dale Wayne Eaton that way, either. According to Radford University's Serial Killer Information Center, Dale Wayne Eaton is an organized lust-type serial killer who is suspected of seven murders and known to have committed two. In this context, organized means that his crimes were planned and methodical, and lust means that his motivation was sexual. Well, except for the holding up the family that was... I don't know what his ultimate plan was with that. I mean, that seems like an opportunist and not somebody that is methodically planned out. Well, here's the thing. He was definitely an opportunist. He would find a victim, but then he would have a plan for them. He would usually hold on to them for a while. He would torture them. He was very sadistic. The things that these women went through Mm -hmm. are... I'm not even going to go into the details on this podcast. They're really bad. I noticed we used the Radford 
crime analysis again. Uh, the Radford Serial Killer Information Center? Yes. Um, well, sorry, Radford University Serial Killer Information Center. It is one of my favorite sites. It is so helpful if you're researching something like this. I love it. We utilize that site a lot mm -hmm. for this. Right. It's a great resource. The FBI has said the following about Lisa's killer. Lisa Marie Kimmel fell victim to an assailant who acted methodically and with purpose. She was a randomly selected victim whose path crossed with her assailants by chance. Could the same be said about Amy, and could Dale be her killer? Could she have crossed his path coincidentally while running? Some think so. After all, he lived in the area, and as if that's not hair-raising enough, according to his own brother, he was also camping in the same area that Amy disappeared from during the time that she went missing. That is pretty ominous right there. It is, but police didn't take his brother's tip very seriously because, according to StrangeOutdoors.com, Dale's niece countered the claim by saying that actually he'd been visiting her in Colorado at the time Amy had disappeared. It was his brother's word against his nieces, and investigators who were still laser-focused on Steve at the time chose to believe the niece's explanation. They didn't even investigate for themselves? I don't think they did. Um, according to everything I've read, I don't think they really looked into this very hard. Surprised they caught him in the first place. And there could be something I don't know about. But some people suspected that the substantial reward available for information um, leading to the solving of Amy's disappearance, which was $100,000 at the time... Holy cow. Yeah, was Dale's brother's true motivation for tipping off investigators. Well, I mean, and even if it was, at least he came forward with some information... I think it was only a few episodes ago that I went off on people for, or it was the last episode when I went off on people for not sharing any information they had. To be fair, you have done that in the majority of our episodes. I do call <laughs> out somebody for inaction, but right. at least he came forward with something. Yeah. Follow up on it. Some people thought that he was lying, like he was just trying to frame his brother and throw him to the wolves so he could get this $100,000, but... It later turned out that his brother was a serial killer, so that seems pretty unfair and looking back. Even if it was, you know what? At least give it the time it to check to see if it's a valid option, just in case it's legitimate. Right. I, can you imagine when it came out that and, his brother was a serial killer and that was confirmed? What a great I told you so moment for this yeah, guy. Like, and plus, could you imagine maybe they could have found out that he was a serial killer or he's been doing these other things right, so, prior to mm -hmm. that if they would have looked at him seriously? Right. Some people think that this led investigators to miss out on possibly identifying and catching the Great Basin serial killer, an individual who was believed to have murdered a total of 11 women between the ages of 18 and 35 during the 80s and 90s. Wyoming, Idaho, Nevada, and Utah. According to the Billings Gazette, another investigator who investigated Lisa's case, retired ATF agent Don Flickinger, has said that federal investigators are interested in Dale Wayne Eaton as a possible suspect in Amy's disappearance. And Flickinger personally agrees. He says he has a gut feeling that Dale was responsible for the murders of other women in the area. In 2003, a hiker found a Timex watch that might have been Amy's, but there was no way to tell for sure if it was hers or just one just like it. Yeah. If it was hers, it's the only trace of her that's ever been found. Amy was declared legally dead seven years after her disappearance, but her remains have yet to be recovered. Unfortunately, this deprives investigators of a wealth of information and evidence that her body might offer. 
They don't know where, when, or how she died. Information that could potentially be extremely helpful in determining what really happened to her. In addition to theories of a serial killer or a violent spouse, I'd also like to throw out a humbler possibility. What if Amy's death was an accident? For example, she was struck by a motorist while running on a twisting mountain road and the person responsible panicked and hid her body. The part of Wyoming Amy disappeared from is incredibly rugged, with vast tracts of wilderness. One of the most impressive is the Wind River Reservation, which is just north of Lander. It's the seventh largest American Indian reservation in the entire country, spanning a staggering 2.2 million acres. If someone wanted to hide a body in central Wyoming, the possible locations would be endless. To put things into perspective, investigators covered a 30 square mile area of land extensively while searching for Amy. The Wind River Reservation covers over three and a half million square miles, which is more than 116,000 times greater than the area they searched. Is it possible that someone accidentally hit Amy with their car and hid her body so they wouldn't be held responsible for her death? It's just an idea, but statistically speaking, it's probably more likely than her being killed by a wild animal. It is. I'm just, I'm still stuck on them not going game or with the tip. Like, I know. I keep I, thinking about that, too. For the record, um, Dale has been questioned about Amy's death and some other deaths, but he refuses to say anything. And he's on death row, so... There's not really anything they can threaten him with. I mean, it's fairly frequent. It's like their last big, haha, I've got this little bit of control over the family yeah. to deprive them of that. Mm-hmm. That last act of control and cruelty. Yeah, it, it's fairly common amongst, you, you hear about it and we've heard about it in a few of these stories, actually. Right, it is pretty common. And... It's a common theme, much like my common theme is see something, say something. Well, somebody said something. We don't know if they saw anything or not because it wasn't taken seriously. But if it was, could they have prevented other murders? It's too bad. The world may never know. Amy was only 24 when she disappeared and likely died. She had a bright future ahead of her, a new home, her recent marriage, and maybe even the Olympics to look forward to. And something or somebody took all of that away from her. With the 23rd anniversary of her disappearance just having passed, she's been missing almost as long as she was alive. If you know anything about Amy Rowe Bechtel's disappearance, please contact the Fremont County Sheriff's Office at 307-332-5611. That's all for this episode of Last Seen Alive. Hope you've enjoyed listening. Make sure you check out our website, lastingalifepodcast.com, for photos from the story and links to the sources we've used to write it. Well, we keep saying we. I really mean you. Yeah, it's all me. (laughs) While you're at it, follow us on Insta and Twitter at LSA Podcast. That isn't us. It is. New episodes of Lasting Alive go live every other Monday. See you then. Meanwhile, if you've enjoyed you, the listener have enjoyed what you've heard today, please take a moment to leave Lasting Alive, us, a five-star review. <laughs> Tell your friends to check us out, too. We'd really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Lasting Alive is written and researched by you, Leah. Mm-hmm. Audio engineering and editing is provided by me, Scott. And listening pleasure is provided by you, the listener. <laughs> <laughs>
good 